meant to ask you actually are are your uh, your gyms open yet or are you still yeah uh, oh cool yeah no they, no they've been open for probably about three yeah about three weeks so nice. it's been it's been fucking brilliant to go back to be honest with you i i i mean i'm i get genuinely quite cranky if i haven't been to the gym for two or three days like i could feel this morning because i i had my daughter on from friday so um <clears throat> i didn't have obviously wasn't going to go on friday so I've, I've had three days on the trot now where i've not gone and i can feel how i start getting uh i get genuinely cranky i feel like there's something rushing me if i don't uh, if i don't go so it's uh, yeah, it's fucking brilliant going back. And I, I, you know, my my strength had dropped down quite a bit, but I could I, I got back up to about three twenty five on deadlifts, um, and I was bent back to benching about two fifty. So it's all right. Um, you know, I'll pick up. I'll, I'll hopefully pick things back up again. And it's good if you if you've been doing it for years. You know, your muscle memory kicks in and things like that. But yeah, it's been fucking awesome, man. Yeah, um, I'm very. I'm very glad that I that, it, that it's open again. Generally speaking, like I said to you over here, the, they're not they're not that bad with the lockdown. Um, I think the problem in America is that everything 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 has become politicized, including the lockdown. So, you know, I can see them dragging it out fucking ever in uh, in the states. Um, or if the Democrats win in November, it'll miraculously the lockdown will lift on November the fourth. Probably. Um, well, out here in Jersey and New York City and, you know, the New York State, rather, and, you know, Connecticut, uh, the, the, the virus is actually a very low rate. And um, the gym, like the actual weightlifting type places are opening up tomorrow. Yeah, uh, that's good. But like the martial arts gyms, like the Muay Thai gym I go to is, uh, has been open for about a month and, um, you know, about five weeks or so. And that's been great. And, uh, you know, there's been some restrictions, like number of people. Um, you know, we were just doing, you know, drills and like bag work and just now started doing pads again. And, um, but yeah, that's, you know, it's been, uh, I, I mean, I'm glad that actually we, you know, everyone was cautious and took their time and everything. And, uh, but yeah, it's been like a huge emotional, um, you know, lift, you know, with just being able to train again instead of just yeah. you know, trying to do it by yourself. It's always rough. Yeah, man, it's it's not the same. I I had weights and stuff here at home, and obviously just light weights. Mm -hmm. But I try to you know do um, you know loads of volume and, and things like that, and uh, you know you, you kind of do continuous reps for forty five seconds or a minute or whatever. And it's it's just not the same. And I I feel like if there's not people around me, um, you know, indirectly or probably without them realizing, threatening to make me look like an asshole, <laughs> I don't have as many. Uh, I don't have as much motivation as I normally would have. So uh, it's good when there's, you know, if I go to the gym and there's some some young punk standing next to me doing deadlifts, I'm like, yeah, I, old, old, old man has to show you how it's done. Yeah. No, that's that's cool, man. I'm glad that that stuff's coming around. And uh, yeah, like I said, you know, things are pretty pretty good in this part of the country. I mean, obviously, if I feel like there's a, you know, we're in, a, we're in a powder keg right now, though. I just uh, a lot, oh, a dude, lot of unease, getting, very unease. It's getting worse and worse and worse. Um, and it's it's you know, I don't know what the. I mean, I I, I my 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 brain says one thing, my heart says another in terms of what the of what the solution would be. Um, but it's it's fucking terrifying what's going on there right now. And Tim Pool, who I really like, he said exactly the right thing a little while ago on his show. 
Um, you know, he said that his concern is is, is now that the, the, the two sides have such opposing views of reality. There is literally no more middle ground. Like, like you know, you've got these two extreme factions. And, and, and I think, unfortunately, a lot of people in the center that are just kind of sitting watching this, shaking their heads, going, what in the fuck is going on here? Um, but uh, those two extreme factions, like I said, they just don't. They don't see eye to eye whatsoever anymore. They don't, and and like I said, they they have two com- entirely different interpretations of reality, and that's terrifying. Yeah, and and I had a, a very interesting talk with my mother yesterday, who is you know pretty conservative, but uh, you know she's not a Trump supporter, and um, you know she's like a, you know against him, and and she reminded me that my grandmother and grandfather were Democrats. And, you know, my mother, I, I, all these years, I thought my mother was uh, registered as a Republican, but she's actually registered as an independent, which is yeah. like, uh, you know, this day and age is, is like you can't vote in the primaries in this country unless you pick a, a party affiliation. You know, you can yeah, yeah. But I don't know if everyone should vote in the primaries. Really, you know what I mean? It's uh, no, you know, I don't know, whatever. I don't want to get into politics, but it's just uh it's so intertwined with life over here right now that it's almost impossible not to talk about it. That's the thing I know. The thing for me, I mean, I'd always kind of, you know, I guess been been taught shut your mouth about politics and you know, or keep your political views to yourself. And and because I, you know, a lot of my work kind of cascades over into the U.S. and actually will increasingly do because I'm I'm just about to get promoted again and I'm going to start looking after the U.S. as well. Oh, so actually, the good thing is. Well, no, thank you. Well, the good thing is I'm, I might actually, once uh, all the restrictions have lifted, I'll, I'll probably start traveling to the U.S. at least for at least a week or so once every quarter. Nice. So uh, hopefully I can uh, hopefully I can see you when I'm there. But the, uh, the, the amount to which people discuss political stuff at work is, is also nuts because, you know, you can't really uh, – I personally don't generally want to speak to a lot of people about politics because for the most part, most people don't know what they're talking about. So for me, I, like, I, I, I try and steer clear of, of, of any conversations like that whatsoever, but it, it gets very difficult to because you keep getting put in a spot where you have to give an opinion, but you never know you know, who's listening. You never know who's going to take what you say the wrong way. It's, it's just a fuck-up. Yeah, I, in general, it's better that I don't say anything at work about anything regarding religion or politics. It's like, uh, you know, I mean, yeah, you know, I I uh, keep my mouth shut. I do my job. I talk about, um, you know, banal things, you know, and mainly I just talk about work. And it's funny. I mean, I've been working, like I said, I've been working on and off for this company for the better part of you know 15 years maybe maybe more than that and i remember uh and this and this was like um you know someone who was a uh, a senior level person who i actually had a really good relationship with but he walked by my desk one day and we would talk all the time and you know on a friendly level and he's like you know mike uh i don't know anything about you man it's like i uh <laughs> you know it's like you walk by other other people's desks and you can see, well, this guy's a family man. He's got pictures of his family up there. It's, this guy's into golf. He's got like a picture of him in a golf course and this guy's into fishing or whatever. And it's like, I walk by your desk and there's literally nothing on your desk but just work stuff. And I'm just like, yeah, you know, I'm a, I'm a quiet sort of guy. I don't want to, you know, how to, I, I just keep to myself, you know. And, and it's, I think that's the only way to go, man, because, um, you know, our, our office is slash was in New York City 
And yeah, one of my coworkers who I actually spend a lot of time with and generally get along with really well is this right wing, like totally militaristic Trump supporter. Yeah. And every now and then he just dips into this narrative and I'm like, all right, guy, listen, man, you're, you're way out in the fringes. I don't agree with anything you're saying. And I think let's just, let's just leave it at that. Let's just agree to disagree. And I said, the last person in this whole office you want to hear talk about religion or politics is me. So, you know, let's just <laughs> yeah. leave it at that. You know what I mean? But, you know, again, I've said this many times on, on my own show, and I, 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 I truly believe this. I think if, if um, you took social media out of the equation and you took the mainstream media out of the equation and people sat down and they, they, they spoke to each other about what they think on specific topics or specific policy or specific, um, you know, ideas, I think, I think a lot of people would realize that they have a lot more in common than they don't. I, I, I truly believe that. And I've, because, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm, I'm, I'm relatively to the conservative side, politically speaking as well. But at the same time, I believe in women's rights. So, you know, I'm pro-abortion. I'm pro-marijuana legalization. I mean, there's a, I, I think, I don't think that there's, there are people in the world that are, you know, to the extreme of one side or the other. But for the most part, like I said, I think everyone wants to get to the same place. They just have slightly differing views on how to get there. And I kind of just wish that more of those types of people would be speaking up right now because it feels like, and unfortunately, this is the nature of the press and the nature of social media. You know, the, the, the fucking morons get their voices amplified and everybody else gets told to shut up. But, you know, the, the, the operative here is that being conservative in the UK is a little bit different than being conservative in Trump's America right now. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's... Uh, conservatives it's almost like a curse word here man it's like um it's almost like an entry out of like the turner diaries or something if you're conservative <laughs> you know it's like really i mean because yeah. when you start seeing american flags and the word conservative and republican you start thinking about you know racism and these like fringe alt-right groups and it it used to not be that way when i was growing up i mean you know of course george bush no one liked him, but he was just a you know politician, basically. You know, yeah. Obviously, I traveled abroad. I took a lot of shit because my country had George Bush as president. Um, you know, and and I get it, but you know now it's like it really is like we're in this dystopian movie about a, an oncoming apocalypse. You know, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, it, it's like you can't write fiction to match. You know the the story that's going on here in the United how, States. How, how crazy things are. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, I I I hear what you're saying. But like I said, I, I do think that I think a lot of the stuff is um, is drummed up by by the media. Um, I mean, this, the the amount of times that they've been, especially in the last couple of years, that CNN and and Fox and MSNBC and everybody has been just caught outright lying or carrying water for the other side is fucking astounding. And nobody, there's there's too few people. And I think this is because I, I grew up in a place that was fairly divisive to begin with and where you, you had a lot of misinformation spread by the media. So I've been trained from a young age not to believe anything that I hear. But, um, you know, I think I, I think too few people question what they're hearing. 
and uh, because they 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 don't ever question it, they they just then get stuck in their social media echo chambers, and and that's what they believe until the end of time. No one, there's very few people that when you actually have, you know these these people that are very quick to, to pick a political argument with you as an example at work, when you actually start start picking apart their arguments and what it's based on. Very, very few people are going to be able to give you anything halfway intelligent. Like a friend of mine explained it correctly. It's like the, the average person, as soon as you put the squeeze on them, all you hear is talking points from whatever news they listen to. There's very few ideas of their own that they've got there, and very little is based on actual study, actual research of their own, and you know them actually going, okay, based on all of the facts and all of the data that I could gather, here's my opinion on X. You know what I mean? Absolutely. It's all emotional. It's all like, you know, yeah. like uh, shooting from the hip, a lot of emotional stuff, a lot of group mentality, um, you know, and I believe that it's been percolating for like the last six, seven, eight years in this country. Just yeah. with, uh, you know, even it, it's almost it really is like a, almost architected in a way. It seems engineered to have this divisiveness. And it started way back with all of the call-outs and all this other kind of alienation um, around what people say and, um, you know, people being canceled and cancel culture in this country. Yeah. And, and uh, that set the stage for, oh, you know, the, the liberal, you know, snowflake. And then there's, uh, you know, the right wing, just a regular guy. I'm just like a working dude, you know, earn my living. I'm a little rough around the edges. Don't be so sensitive. You know, that division is yeah. really, in this country at least, how I feel like that has been in process for a really long time. And it's manifesting itself in our political uh, conflicts right now. And it's just... Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, you I know, agree. It's, it's, I, it's, it's terrifying. I've yeah. studied enough, because I've studied enough about war to, to realize that, or to know, and as I'm sure you have, that... When people get to that point where you can no longer resolve conflict through conversation, you've got a problem. Yeah, I mean, there was like this, you know, people were killed over the weekend in Oregon. You know, there was yeah, a no, protest no. and a counter protest and it was just firing fucking tear gas at each other. And it was just crazy, you know. Yeah. I mean, the West no, Coast, I mean, not, not to sound like a, you know, I, I've always been nervous <laughs> in the Northwest, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, I've always felt very. It's a wild country, man. It's um, you know, a lot of very fringe ideas on both ends of the spectrum exist in in Oregon as a state, you know. And it's yeah. I'm not surprised that that's where the most extreme stuff happens these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The thing is, you know, people, you know, some folks in the media will talk about, uh, you know, if uh, if Trump wins in the uh, in November, you know, the the West Coast might secede. But then you also think about it from a, you know. In terms of realistically what could happen, there's no way they can – no one's going to secede in America. No. How do you split anything up? It's the same as people that say there'll be outright civil war. They won't be because there's, there's, there's not two sides that are structured enough and organized enough to wage war against each other. But what you will have, I think, is ongoing civil unrest that will get worse and worse and worse. Um, you know, And again, honestly speaking, like I'm always on the side of people that – I'm on the side of the, the person that – abides by the rules, does their, does their day job every single day, pays their taxes, abide, you know, abides by the law despite the fact that they don't enjoy it. I think that those people deserve to be able to live in peace and not be, you know, not be fucked with by a bunch of lunatics. And in many cases, what I see in the States 
is a bunch of fucking spoiled middle-class white assholes running around pretend role-playing about stuff that they don't know anything about really like the, the vast majority of them if if if, if the the revolution that they are, you know, baying for actually came. They wouldn't know what the fuck has hit them. I think, uh, for, from my perspective, I would get, I'd, I'd, I'd judge dread those people off the streets as soon as possible. Well, yeah, I mean that that actually was demonstrated pretty uh, clearly with um, what happened in Seattle with the Chaz. You know, I don't yeah, know if you read about yeah, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. I did, and I, I, I follow this very closely. So, yeah, within within a day, they've built they built borders. One person is dead. Yeah, they created <laughs> they've, they've a fascist created a, state. <laughs> I was about to say they've got like a segregated area for African Americans. It was the most fucking insane thing ever. Yeah, you know, and and that's like, uh, you know, throughout history, that's that's the guys who are really good at overthrowing the government, and uh, you know like terrorism and stuff like that are usually not the people who can organize stuff and get things done, you know, and keep yeah. the, uh, you know, the lights on and, and the, the food supply happening and, and the emergency services, uh, you know, engaged. Those are not the same people, you know, and if, unless you have a plan, you know, I mean, that even happens in the Middle East, like when the American, you know, the United States yeah. goes over and they destabilize these governments and then the, the people that take over are oftentimes worse than the powers that they just ousted, you know, it's like a bunch yeah, of warlords, 100%. and you know, it's like an opportunity for these, uh, you know, villains to step in and, and you know, fractionalize everything, and and that's like really what what the end game is with a lot of this stuff is. I, I'm afraid that people don't think that far in advance, and they just shoot from the hip, and they have all this emotion, and they you know they'll they'll you know fuck the police and all this, and you know, and I'm not believe I'm the first one to admit that the cops have uh you know need there needs to be some kind of uh, police reform in this country and yeah I, a lot of times i question i go since when have the cops been cool i mean that's like the thing man it's i remember like as a kid yeah you know, the police were not cool like you didn't you didn't you know you were at odds with the cops they were coming they were breaking yeah. up you know they're in la in the 80s the cops were like at war with like punk rock and everything and i'm just like yeah man like when were the cops like cool you know, the riots, yeah. you know, like, you know, they were the strong arm fascists. And if anything, police have gotten more militaristic in their, their, you know, tactics here in this country. And, you know, that's what I mean. It, it makes me laugh all this support for the police. Um, and I'm just like, man, what, what world did you live in where the cops were actually on your side? And yeah. That's, and that's not to say that I don't believe that we, we, you know, I don't think we, don't need police. I think that we need some sort of like, you know, public service, you know, not jackbooted, you know, stormtroopers. You know, that's that's yeah. the thing. It's like there's a middle ground, I think, between all this stuff. And Well, that, I, I, I agree with you. I think there's definitely place for reform. And I think there's definitely a uh, place for, for the police to move toward a middle ground. But then at the same time, you know, if I look at the statistics, I think in America, the police have something are in the vicinity of 320 million interactions with the public every year. My question around something like defunding the police is always, in the grand scheme of things, not looking at individual scenarios, but in the grand scheme of things, does defunding the police or lessening police presence or or lowering the, the amount of training that police receive, does it, is it going to make the public more safe or less safe? 
a lot of the studies I've read suggest that it's going to make them less safe. In uh, in places like Chicago, uh, anytime that there's been you know uh, an incident where somebody has been killed as a, as a result of police brutality, they typically tend to find that the police as a whole withdraw from the public, and whenever that happens, crime spikes. You know, you can, again look at look at places like Chicago where they where they're already talking about defunding the police. The crime is fucking out of control there. I think Jocko uh, Willink again. He spoke about this on Joe Rogan, and he was right in my view. The the police need more training, not less. It's it's a fucking tough job. If you if you're in a situation where you're gonna where you have to de-escalate gang violence, for example, and you know you you know and I know from you know because we've done Muay Thai training. If you if you haven't sparred for four months and you step in with somebody who has. You're gonna get your fucking ass kicked. Yeah. Um, so I feel like you know I, I I agree with what Jocko was saying. He said these people should be should, you know two days out of their work week should be spent training. They should be like muscle memory ready to be able to respond to a situation accordingly. Um, yeah, I mean, like sorry, my, my criticism of the cops really is is yeah I agree there should be more training and also they should be more discerning as to who they make cops, because that was my big yeah. thing. I learned that yeah, right, yeah. right quick, like when I was younger. I used to work at the, when I lived in Boston for a while, which is like one of the most racist, segregated cities you can <laughs> imagine. I mean, it's like, yeah. you know, re- legit, like, you know, seriously, like crazy views about race in that city. And I, um, I had a job down on, right down by the Long Wharf area in this office, and I would go to the sandwich shop to get, you know, lunch occasionally. And there was this like guy who would usually get your order wrong. He didn't know how to, you know, work the cash register. You know, he was just kind of like this like moron, for lack of a better term. Yeah. And one day I went in there, and I overheard him talking to one of his coworkers about, oh yeah, my last day here is next next Monday. You know, I'm, I'm I, I passed the exam to become a cop. And I'm like, wow. These are the kinds of fucking people that are becoming police officers. And yeah, I guess yeah. that goes into the, I mean, I'm not saying every single cop is like that because I do know some cops. They're, they're legit people. I don't, you know, but if a guy like that is, can, can get on the police force in Boston and you're going to give this guy a badge and a gun, yeah, there's, a, there's yeah. a problem with the minimum requirements that you have. That's a job that you should have like, that's like the ultimate responsibility, man. You can't just give that that job to some guy who can't work a cash register. I mean, I can't work a cash register either, but I also don't work in a <laughs> yeah. sandwich shop. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. No, I, I agree with you. But, you know, again, then I, I come back to the question about defunding the police. If you if the police has less money to go around, are you going to be able to hire a better or lower quality of, of, of police, of policeman or policewoman? I, I I tend to to think that it's it's probably going to hurt the quality of people that you're able to deliver, or sorry, be able to recruit. Uh, you know, when you add on top of that the the kind of social stigma that the that the media is is creating around police uh, people in the police. You know, in the in the UK, there's this there's this saying that if the U, the US sneezes, the UK catches a cold. It's kind of happened here as well. You know, people are running around acting like the police is particularly violent and brutal here, which is just absolute fucking nonsense. Um, and and I've had you know dealings with the police in the UK on a couple of occasions, and I have to admit every single one of them was positive. There's not I mean you know, not not I've not come across a single cop in this in this country that I stood back and went that guy's a fucking asshole. 
Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, it's a mixed bag now, now that I'm an, you know, I'm an older member of society and I don't look as threatening, I guess, like, uh, my interactions with the police is, you know, I'm a white guy, you know, I'm an older male, you know, I, I guess I appear under certain, um, aspects to be, uh, you know, kind of respectable. So the cops actually deal with me in a different way than they did when I was 19 years old. And, um, yeah, that, that was a different world for me. And, and I'm, you know, and being white in this country is is a is a plus, a very big plus for you when you're dealing with the police, you know. And, and yeah, that's yeah. and that's a whole other ball of wax that it's a real that's real. That's like something that's legitimately a problem in this country is this systemic, you know, I know it's a cliche, but it's true. You know, systemic racism. It's like uh it has been baked into the fabric of the United States. You know, when, I mean, all through, I mean, our, the history of my country is way, way shorter than, say, the UK. I mean, you have, you, yeah. you guys have like the Roman, you know, Roman Empire was, was part of, you know, I mean, you, there's Hadrian's Wall. There's like castles in England, you know what I mean? Here we have like the oldest buildings here are probably like 300, 250 years old or something like that, you know? And, um, you know, so the the recent recency bias of all this stuff is you know it's slavery and and all this other stuff and then the south and the freeing of slaves and it being this the way the south looks at it more of like this ep, ep, economic uh sort of uh motivation as opposed to this altruistic uh you know freedom related um angle that the north likes to see it you know and it's like a lot of this stuff is coming to light these days, and I think that's positive, you know, and I think that having to look at the reality of our country's history, or my country's history, um, in, in a, a modern light, I think is, is good. And, and I, I've talked about this before to my friends, where it's like, you remember like, um, you know, the Mayan uh, calendar, uh, you know, that yeah. whole fear and all this stuff, how that, that was like, what, 2012? Yeah. And oh yeah, nothing happened in 2012. There was no cataclysm like the Anunnaki didn't come back, you know, or anything like that. But I'm going to say that I believe that something did shift that might have started back then that's manifesting now. And I think that it's I think a huge paradigm has shifted. And this might be, you know, the whole pan year of the pandemic or whatever and all the unrest that's going on at least here and actually worldwide there's been a lot of other things happening might actually be some sort of um, reverberation of, of something that might have happened in like a long calendar, you know? I don't know. That's just I, I, don't think, I don't think you're wrong. I think um, it feels like if, if, uh, if anything else, COVID-19 was, was the switch to put everything in motion. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, think, uh, I think you may have a good point there. Yeah. Well, one of the things we wanted to talk about today was the movie There Will Be Blood. And um, I watched it again recently. And, I, you know, it's funny. The, it came out in 20, 2007. I didn't, I, I, if you were to press me and say, when did, when did There Will Be Blood come out? I would say, oh, you know, 2014. Man, it came out like 13 years ago. I know. It's crazy. You know why I think, I, I think that it still feels so new is the, I think there's not been a movie where I've seen so much discussion and so much debate around a film 
um, as as this. You know, there's still to this day there's there's like articles being written about there'll be blood. I a little while ago I, I read um, extracts out of somebody who'd done a university thesis analyzing the movie. So it feels like it's something that. In many ways, it's almost like The Sopranos recently did with, uh, with with the lockdown, where it really sort of picked steam back up again. I feel like the same happened with There Will Be Blood. It's it's a movie that's been studied by by people more so than the vast majority of other um, of other films. Um, so I, I, I hear what you're saying. It does it does feel very recent. And I, I'm going to place a caveat right at the start of this conversation. And say if anyone's looking for a nuanced or critical view of this movie, they're not going to get it from me. I, it's my favorite. It's my favorite film of all time by not even just a slight margin. I, I, I treat this movie a lot like I would a uh, like my favorite album of all time. Uh, in that I can watch it over and over and over again, and I feel like I always take something new from it. I remember seeing it in the cinema for the first time, and I and I literally just sat there stunned through the through the credits. I, I you know, everyone was leaving. I, just, I was staring at the screen. I was like, "What have I just seen?" And I watched it three times at the cinema, um, of which once was by myself, once with a friend, and once with my with a girlfriend at the time. And then I've probably watched it at least. 30 to 40 times since and uh I, i've not once walked away from the movie and and not having you know thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it yeah it's a great film it's an epic movie man and um i feel like in a lot of ways it kind of harkens back to an older age of cinema that they i, feel, I hate to say it, but they just don't make movies like this anymore you know what i mean and uh um, 100 yeah you know it's got a great cast you know um you know uh of course daniel day lewis is a master craftsman when it comes to the craft of acting and um you know being a oh another uh, I, I was gonna say about about, about daniel de lewis I, I there's 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 quite a lot to, to to kind of unpack about his um about his performance but you mentioned um that it was you know that it harkens back to a you know an, an older golden age of, of of hollywood one thing that's very interesting is um one of the biggest influences on the film and Paul Thomas Anderson has, has said this many times. There was a movie from 1948 called The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, mm -hmm. um, which was by John Huston, um, uh, as well as a James Dean movie called Giant. Yeah. Um, and both have had a massive impact, not only on, on kind of the writing of the script, but actually how the movie ended up looking. They, they actually, um, in terms of the cinematography and the, um, the, the way that the film was, uh, was, was put together, they used lenses, for example, that, that didn't have a zoom function to them or weren't able to support zoom functionality. Uh, they used very minimal lighting. They didn't do an awful lot of rehearsal. Um, I think there's only one scene in the movie that was actually rehearsed and pre-planned. You know, everything else kind of had a loose plan for it. And obviously there was a script that they wanted people to stick to, but there's a lot of spontaneity that comes out. And, and that harkens back to a lot of those old films. Um, sorry, I didn't, didn't mean to interrupt you there, but I, I, I wanted to mention that um, because in, in the run-up to us recording this, I, I've, I've, I've probably been doing more studying about the movie than, uh, than I might ordinarily have done. I, I was going to say that the, uh, particularly the most compelling scenes are the ones between Daniel Day-Lewis, uh, you know, his character Daniel Plainview, and uh, Paul Dano uh, as Eli Sunday, who plays a two roles in this film. He plays his twin brother Paul, and he plays the uh, what is it, the uh, the the Church of the Third uh, Revelation. Church of the Third Revelation. Yeah, <laughs> it's like a tip. I mean, that just like a, a fire and brimstone um, Protestant 
you know, early American preacher, you know, filled with the power of Jesus. And, yeah. um, and those scenes in particular are gripping, in my opinion. You know, I mean, there's so much, especially the scene when, um, when you know, and, and he, this was kind of, this is an interesting scene, the scene where uh, Daniel Day-Lewis's character has to be baptized into the Church of the Third Revelation. And he, in order to get, uh, you know, the blessing to, you know, they're building a pipeline. And I, th- I found the, the pipeline aspect to be very interesting, too, because he's like, yeah, you know, we're building an oil pipeline. You know, it's an eight-inch pipe. And I'm like, eight inches? <laughs> it's like, that, that's like a, a very small pipe, actually, to, to, to be mm. delivering uh, petroleum. You know, I mean, that, I found that to be very funny, but whatever. No one, maybe only a geek like me would really uh, appreciate something <laughs> like that. Yeah. I mean, usually that pipe is like 40... 40 inches diameter, you know, multiple pipes, you know, not just one. But uh, so it's kind of a work that he agrees to be baptized. However, with all of his being compelled to uh, admit to his sins, I felt like something real happened with his character when he's talking about abandoning his his son and, and all this other stuff. And that scene was like, one of the most powerful scenes in the movie, I thought, because it started in this like fantasy agreement of, yeah, okay, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna acquiesce to your wishes so that I get what I want out of this agreement. But in in the actual environment of that scene, where they're in the church and he's being compelled to admit his sins, you know, and at this point, uh, Plainview had murdered someone. He'd abandoned his son. He'd, uh, you know, swindled people out of their land, um, lied, <laughs> you know, pretty much all of the major sins he'd committed, except for maybe adultery, because like there's, there's a uh, suspiciously absence of women really in this storyline, you know, and um, yeah, you know, so yeah, it, I thought that was like one of the most intense scenes in the movie. I agree. It, it, to me, that's one of the greatest scenes ever filmed. And I, you know, speaking of discovering new things in a in a scene, I, I when I was watching that again last night, one thing that I noticed when he goes and it's actually and it ties into what you said about him experiencing something real while it's happening. Well, one thing I noticed is when he goes to sit down um, after he's been baptized and they're singing, "There's power in the blood," um, you know, the, the congregation, he he appears to wipe his eyes. And at first I thought that's because he's wet from the water, but the way that he wipes his eyes, if you rewatch that scene, it looks like he's crying. Yeah. Um, and I thought that was, I, I, it was the first, as I said, I've, as many times as I've noticed it before, it's, it's extremely subtle, but it's the first time that I noticed it there. Another subtlety that I noticed in the, uh, uh, in that scene is after he's been baptized, he stands up and he turns to Eli and he, he shakes his hand and he pulls him in close and you can see him talking to him. Obviously, you don't hear what he's saying, and and Paul Dano's character uh, Eli pulls pulls back a little, and he looks really sh- kind of he looks shocked, but he's almost kind of smiling as if to say, "Oh, you must be joking." And then right at the end of the film, uh, when they're having the confrontation in the bowling alley, and he's yelling at him, and he's going after him with a bowling pin, he says, "I told you I would I, I would eat you," and yeah. I thought to myself, like that is that must have been. Like he was so furious about having that, uh, you know, very personal issue with his son thrown in his face in such a public way. That must have been what he effectively told him after the baptism. 
then you know <laughs> if you think you're going to get away with this think again kind of kind of, kind of thing and again something i only noticed after a couple of viewings but it, but that's kind of the beauty of the film so much of the movie is unsaid and and, and subtle but it, it kind of you know it, it, like i said it's like a great record every time you listen to it there's something else that you pick up in it yeah i agree definitely and uh you know let's talk about um daniel day lewis's character daniel plainview for a minute because uh i think that just a completely ego-driven uh borderline personality psychopath that came from nothing i mean it start he starts off as a silver miner a silver prospector and just happens into the oil business sort of mistake by by accident pretty much yeah and manifests his wildest dreams of wealth and power and through that is able to build up this toxic ego which drives him forward through life and there's a a, a wake of destruction pretty much in his path and uh you know ultimately uh at the end of the film i mean and and he's murdered too like he's and so for him to kill um Eli Sunday at the end of the film is like, you know, okay, yeah, I eliminate people. Like this complete, like, philosophy that has no consequences to his actions. And that's pretty much, and at the end, I think his final words were like, I'm, I'm finished or I'm done or something like that. Yeah, he says, I'm finished. I'm finished, yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's just like, I mean, I, I, I don't, I haven't actually read a whole lot of the, dissection of this film i just you know enjoy it on my own and 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 i was you know to me it just uh the the movie is kind of like a, a testament to just the all-consuming greed and how that if if that unless that's tempered by something be it a sense of morals or logic or compassion just consumes the man and ultimately yeah, no, ruins I that person I agree with you. It, it, it's kind of, it, it, he gets worse as he gets distanced from the things that keep him human in the, in the movie. And the thing that's so interesting about him is he, he's, he's an incredibly complex character. So, you know, if you, you start at the beginning of a movie and he has his fall down the, um, down the mine shaft where he breaks his leg, Quentin Tarantino actually pointed out in an interview, cause it's one of his favorite films as well. He said that there's a, there's a, there's a moment when he's crawled out of the mine and he's, he begins crawling on his back to wherever he's going to go for safety where the camera pans up and you, all you see effectively is, is wilderness. And he says that that right there establishes everything about the character's psyche that that effectively you need to know that that you have a man who is so driven and who has such a strong will that he's he is about to if if you kind of follow the vernacular of the story he's about to 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 crawl backwards on his arm with a broken leg for what seems to be miles to get to safety. And then, you know, you, you kind of, the, 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 obviously this, this sort of manifests in this competition that he talks about later on, but there are moments where he's shown to be very human. Um, you know, he, he, there's, there's, you know, moments of real tenderness and real love between him and, um, and HW, his son, even though, you know, HW is, is it's, it's intimated many times. And, and, and he says it at the end of the movie, you know, he was only a cute face to help him by land. But I think there's a lot of things in the movie that, that proves that not to be the case. 
um, you know, he he steps in and, and protects Mary Sunday from her, bro- her father's beatings because um, H.W. mentions that, you know, Mary's dad beats her. She doesn't say her prayers. And then there's a there's this moment where, you know, he uh, he looks at um, at uh, old, old man Sunday until and, and, you know, kind of mockingly tells him, you know, we don't we don't hit kids anymore. So there's there's this there is this human side to him. I feel like it gets what 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 humanity is in him gets gets really damaged by the incident with the the guy who um, pretends to be his brother, and he then finds out that he's been lied to, and it's almost like like the con man has been conned, and that's what 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 angers him so much. And then when his son wants to wants to go his separate ways and and leave the company at the end of the uh, of the film, that's when the final bow breaks. And when he says I'm finished, it's kind of like I've defeated my last foe, being Eli Sunday. And really, there's nothing left for me anymore. It's almost in, in many ways because of the competition. I don't actually feel like like money is even a motivator for him. You know, victory is the motivator, which is interesting because there's there's a there's an I've read a couple of studies around CEOs and around you know real kind of titans of industry and captains of industry, and and a lot of them have borderline personality disorders, and for a lot of them, money isn't of any consequence. Money to them is just a number. It, it's 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 winning the game that's the that's the, the that's that's the juice that makes the squeeze worthwhile. Uh, and I think he reflects a lot of that in his psychology and in his makeup in the film. Yeah, definitely. I mean, there's that was never really the um, yeah that that was the feeling I got too was was that yeah this guy definitely enjoys the fruits of his labor, but it's more even even when he has that interaction with those other oil men uh, when he gets his son back and they're at the they're at that restaurant and his his competitors show up and you know he's fine he he's prospering with his pipeline you know but he still had to like have that one guy say that he made a fool out of him somehow and and the guy and and the guy taking sort of like the higher ground on that is like okay you made a fool out of me you know so what (laughs) and i just thought yeah it's like he was so torn up and just completely bent over because of of this uh grudge that he's been holding against these people for you know it seems like years and and it was all about the other guy yielding to him, and it wasn't really about, well, you know, I'm happy now. I you know I I found another slight path, another uh, passageway that I can go down with the pipeline that you know gave me great wealth. But it's not enough. It was uh, that it wasn't even that. It was that this other guy somehow perceived he perceived this other person besting him in a in a business deal. You know, and, and yeah. it was such it's- a slight. You know. It's again. It's the it's the victory piece that that comes into it. Like that 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 competition is what what drives him. When he has the argument with the the guy from Standard Oil earlier on in the movie, um, and he tells him that he's going to uh, come into his house one one night while you're asleep and slit your throat, <laughs> and then the he says to him, um, you know, you don't tell me how to raise my son, and then he stands up and he says, I'll show you what I can do, and he turns around and he leaves. That's kind of the culmination of that. I, again, I think almost the it, uh, I'm finished is this admission that without competition, he's nothing. He's beaten his he's, he's, he's main rival. You know, he sees his main rival as Eli Sunday, um, you know, because one, he, he despises, you know, religion and he despises the church. He sees it as a con. Him being a con man himself, he recognizes another con artist in Eli Sunday very quickly and he sees him as the biggest obstacle to him achieving everything that he wants. And, and again, I think one of the main messages that you take away from the movie is that, 
in spite of the fact that he has everything that he ever wanted, you know, it's not fulfilling to him because without the competition, he, he has no reason to exist. Yeah, it's it's uh it's, it's powerful, man. And um, you know, I don't I don't I don't really know anyone who is at that level of uh success, but there are a few people that I know that um you know are Wall Street people that just seem like the most miserable fucking people I've ever met in my life. Like I've been to their homes and they live in these like, you know, nice, beautiful homes, but you can just see the just dissatisfaction. And I'm not saying everyone who's successful is unhappy, but a certain type of personality gets drawn into that world. And it really almost isn't about money anymore. It's about, you know, getting getting the better of somebody, you know, like competition, like numbers, like yeah. things like that, you know. Well, he also admits when he talks about having a competition in him that, you know, even though he's put this sweet face on everything and spoken of himself as an oil man and a family man, he, that he hates people, um, you know, and that he sees nothing in people that he feels is worth liking. And he kind of, again, you know, he there's this strange dichotomy in his character and that he, and it's an intentional one, but that he, he wants to be successful enough so that he no longer has to deal with people in any way, shape or form, which is, you know, something I can frankly relate to on many, <laughs> in many occasions. But the, but the further away he gets from people and the further he gets away from, from his humanity, the more miserable he becomes, you know, and the worse off he gets. It's interesting, too. Um, Paul Thomas Anderson actually filmed this movie as if he was shooting a horror. Um, you know, and he said the first the first. Uh, character that he thought of when he was creating Daniel uh, Plainview was Dracula. Um, you know, there's 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 a lot of uh, you know very subtle um, hints at that in the movie. You know, the first time that you see uh, Plainview, for example, he's you know down a shaft and there's very little sunlight coming through. Uh, you know, later on when you see him in the uh, in the mansion, he's he's kind of almost turned into something quite monstrous. And actually, when he when he's when he's chasing after uh, Eli in the uh, in the bowling alley, he's all hunchbacked and he's he's moving in this really awkward way, which is presumably because he had a, you know he broke his leg. But he he he's taken on a very monstrous quality, um, which then therefore brings life to the you know to to Paul Thomas Anderson's you know idea of of you know almost filming him as a monster. Um, by the way, incidentally, that that mansion that they filmed in it's the same mansion that they used for uh, the Big Lebowski. I didn't. Oh, I didn't wow. know that until I read something about it yesterday. They also used it for. Uh, I think the stables at that mansion was used for uh, is a razorhead. I had no idea. That's that's really cool. Yeah, but uh, I think you know, the thing to me that's so incredible about the, the Daniel Plainview character. I mean, Daniel Day Lewis is a phenomenal actor. Period. You know, I don't. I've never seen him in anything where he's not incredible. But I think what makes this performance so exceptional to me is the extent to which he just he absolutely embodies the character and it was interesting listening to how he went about creating the character he spent apparently after he read the script he spent months doing what he he referred to as, as ruminating intensely where he would walk around and, and record um you know bits of dialogue on a dictaphone that he would send to paul thomas anderson um and and that's you know in, in doing so he was he was beginning to find Daniel Plainview's voice, which, you know, in, in the film language is extremely important and the inflection of his voice and the way that he speaks is very important. 
Um, then he started to to look at how the the character would dress, you know. And apparently, the, the one of the pivotal things for him was finding finding what uh, what Daniel's hat would look like. You know, he wears three hats over the course of the movie, and obviously, the one that he wears when he's successful, when he's a prospector, is kind of really stiff and smart looking. Um, and then he said, like, the next piece was once once he was comfortable with the character, was in taking that character and placing the character into the, the, the milieu of the movie and looking at how he would respond to other characters. So he says by the time that he, he got to that piece, he says he had to convince himself that Daniel Plainview was a real character first before he could convince the rest of the uh, – or convince the audience that Plainview was real. And I feel like that – you know, in, in, in that is kind of the – the, the magic of the of the character you know he he's he's it's if you if you you could stick up a, a ton of different actors into that role and they could probably all do a relatively decent job but not but not a single one of them you know and and that includes actors that i rate very highly not a single one of them would do with with that character what daniel day lewis did to him um you know which is to to really turn him into in in, in my view you know one of the most iconic characters you know maybe of the last 100 years yeah, I mean, I actually, when I first saw the film, I was like, huh, is, is, is this was he a historical figure, Daniel Plainview? Is, was there actually a company, like, was he a, a real, like, historical person, like, that existed? Um, and then I discovered that uh, There Will Be Blood was based on an Upton Sinclair novel, um, Oil. Uh, and yeah. Sinclair uh, wrote The Jungle, which um, was, uh, I, I read that ages ago. And um, that that had to, that actually started the uh, safety regulations around manufacturing. That like the power of that book motivated like the formation of like organizations like OSHA in this country uh, because of people dying in industrial accidents and you know children working and all this sort of stuff. So then I realized that that Plain Plainview is a fictional character, but yeah, Daniel Day Lewis uh, really creates like an actual person when you're, when you're seeing him, you're not seeing Daniel day Lewis. You're seeing him like manifesting this other entity through his body and channeling it. And it's, he's like that in pretty much every role I've ever seen him in. And he, I mean, yeah. like, you know, Will Cutting and gangs in New York and uh, another probably lesser known film, my beautiful laundrette. I don't know if you ever saw that. Um, yeah, I did. Yeah. It's just, he, he's, completely different like in every single role i've ever seen him playing you know I, I i completely agree and 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 i think convincing is the key word because like i said i think his approach to acting is very different there was you know rumors around the fact that he'd apparently built an oil derrick in his backyard and worked <laughs> with that for six months that apparently is nonsense but you know the big thing was around the finding the voice and I mean, he's, like I said, his voice sounds so fucking cool. Like, yeah. in, a, in a weird way, it, it's kind of, it, it almost, in the way that the character charms the people of Little Boston in the in the movie, he's almost charming you the way that he the way that he is in the movie. I mean, I I, I feel like in many ways he's written like a like an antihero, because there there are, are are things where I feel like where where I feel a kinship with him as well. You know, and a lot of it is, you know, comes from a very personal place. I also grew up in a, you know, in a deeply devout, you know, Christian home. And I, I still think that some of the, the, the values are, are good values. But I, I, I remember being, you know, very young and, and seeing some of the same craziness that you see in There Will Be Blood and just feeling so much fucking 
I wouldn't even say a revulsion, but just detesting everything that I was seeing and and, and feeling like like every 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 part of me could see it for the scam that it was, and um, I just hated it. And so 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 like he's he's approach to it and the way that this conflict between him and uh, Eli escalates. There were, there were, there, it spoke to me on a level that I, I don't necessarily think the film intended, but I do think that that's the greatness of the character because again, it's not just a, it's not a black and white character. It's a character that there are parts of him that you can see and that you can relate to. You know, I, and I and I and I like some of the spite in his character as well. The the the, the scene where they're just about to start uh, open the well for the first time, and Eli comes in and kind of demands in a in a you know fairly passive aggressive way that. Uh, you know, he he'd be given an opportunity to bless the well, and that Daniel Plainview has to announce him as the uh, the, the proud son of these lands who tended his father's flock. And he turns around <laughs> and he says, he's got he's got his little sister Mary Sunday with him, and he says, the proud daughter of these lands. <laughs> yeah. He blesses the well himself, and the, the the look that he gives him when he does it, almost like go fuck yourself, <laughs> and then he he goes and opens the well. I mean, stuff like that, I just fucking love, absolutely love it. Yeah, but that's also the ego. That's uh, creating it, making an enemy out of Eli, and then that 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 statement right there probably cost him ultimately, you know. And it's like yeah. his own folly, really, by doing that. But yeah, it's um, yeah, I appreciated his, and that's unusual. I mean, you know, back then, I mean, uh, religious freedom was like a big uh, tenet, you know, in uh, early America, and um, even though this takes place in the later part of the eighteen hundreds. Uh, I mean, the country had only been in existence for a little over 100 years at that point, and everyone was uh, some sort of Christian at, at that in that part of American history. Yeah. And uh, for him to, to reject Christianity completely was, is like definitely uh, unusual for that time period. Especially de- rejecting it the way that he does, you know. When he and again, you kind of you you know that he he sees uh, Eli as as the con artist when he when he's watched the the first uh, church service that he attends and he, he looks at him and he says, "That was one goddamn hell of a show." <laughs> he turns and he leaves. I mean, that to me, that's just fucking brilliant. Uh, I, I, I it, it, it again, it, it captures a lot of parts of the character that I can relate to. I mean, there's this clearly stuff that I can't on. I don't get angry at people and run off to them with a fucking bowling pin. But um, it, it, as I said, I feel like he's very much written as an anti-hero in, in the same way that somebody like um, Michael Corleone was. You know, Michael Corleone, if you break it down to kind of brass tacks, is a horrible human being. And yet there's always there's something about him that's appealing when you watch The Godfather. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think uh, that's a good point because he, he is framed in the same way. You know, even like, you know, Mafia films in general, you know, they yeah. focus on characters like Don Corleone, Michael Corleone, um, you know, uh, Tony Soprano, like all these like horrible people, but they play up the humanity because people are complicated, you know? Yeah. And uh, yeah, the question I have too is, do you think that Eli Sunday believed any of the things that he was preaching? I think there's no way for me to answer that without probably pulling on some of my own experience with people like Eli. And, and I, as I said, I've known many of them. I think to a degree he did, but I think he, he believed it to the degree that it, um, it excused any of his behavior, you know, especially later on in the, um, 
in the movie when he talks about how God failed to inform him about the the recent um, uh, well, I don't know what he refers to it as, but the, you know the recent tensions in the economy. Um, and it's almost like I've gone out and, and squandered money the churches have provided me with, and you know, good, I got myself into a load of debt, and now I'm going to scam somebody's land out, you know, who's in my church. I'm going to, I'm going to scam them out of my land to sell to you, so that I can, uh, you know, bail myself out of trouble. I feel like, like I said, I think he believes it to the to the point where it either enriches him uh, or it helps justify his own weakness. Yeah, I think in some ways uh, Eli is like the shadow of uh, of of a uh, plain view. You know what I mean? They're almost motivated by the same things. You know, power, yeah. comp- competition. Uh, Eli's char- you know, Eli Sunday is a way more passive aggressive character than than plain view. Plain view will you know deceive you, but he's doing it aggressively. Where Sunday is more of a manipulator behind the scenes. Yeah, you know? yeah. and. Yeah, the religious aspect of this thing. I mean, I've, 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 oh, I'm always interested in religion, like Christianity and all this other stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm not. I mean, I grew up in a Roman Catholic household, but I don't, you know, I don't practice uh, Christianity or, or any specific religion or anything like that. But um, having that being part of my um, my upbringing and uh, learning about other, you know, like the Protestant religion, who in in the United States, they're into this like cathartic release and, you know, the blood of Christ bathed in the, you know, that all this really dramatic stuff. Um, I think the catharsis of that makes people feel good, you know? Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think that when he found God and found his path, you know, basking in the glory of Jesus Christ and he saw that he had a knack for um you know being Christ's instrument in their community that's when his ego got tickled and I think that that ultimately led him I mean at the end of the film you see him he's got like this gold chain on with a cross on it which I thought was yeah yeah he's got this like suit you know and and the that gigantic cross around his neck like yeah. When I first saw that, I mean, also be, growing up in, uh, you know, in the New York, New Jersey area my whole life and being around Guidos, which probably aren't a thing in, in the in the UK. No. Seeing gigantic crosses around people's necks is like, I'm like, yeah, this, but I'm like, oh, that's pretty cool. He's got this like gold chain, you know, with a gigantic cross around his neck. That's, you know, I saw that the other yeah. day, actually, on some dude driving a Trans Am, you know, but anyway, I thought it was funny that he had actually found himself in a similar position that Plainview has like completely emotionally ruined, beaten, broken, but unlike Plainview in debt. And that's why he was, he came around, you know what I mean? And, and, and Plainview's the first step in him declaring victory over, over an, uh, over, over an enemy or uh, an opponent much the same as he does with the um, with a guy from Standard Oil is to is to humiliate them. Yeah. So the first thing that he does is he gets Eli to say that he's a false prophet and that God is a superstition, and then it's, you know once he's kind of got him onto this really sort of emotional peak, he turns around and he tells him that he's already he's yeah. already drilled the the the, the bandy tracked and that he doesn't need it anymore. Um, 
Which, I mean, again, I, I know we've spoken a lot about uh, Daniel Day-Lewis, but Paul Dano deserves a tremendous amount of props for, for that role. I mean, he's not only is he incredibly gifted as an actor generally, but he's very, very good in that role. And uh, he also put up with an awful lot of fucking abuse. I mean, those those slaps that uh, that Daniel Day-Lewis gives him when uh, when he goes to confront him at the, at the well – I mean that is seriously hard. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did. I did read that apparently um, that was not rehearsed, and uh, Paul Dano <laughs> like they they had to kind of play nice afterwards for a bit because I think Paul possibly didn't massively appreciate being smacked around as hard as he was, you know, and having mud shoved in his mouth. By the way, another fun fact for you: the oil that was used in the movie uh, is actually the same um, uh, syrup they use for chocolate milkshakes mm. at McDonald's. Oh, wow. It's like a food-grade variant on that syrup that oh, they so used. Because obviously people are going to be drenched in it all the time, and they're going to have you know, the shit in their mouths and things like that, so they couldn't have actual oil. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it, I don't know if it, if it tasted chocolate, but like I said, it's food-grade, and it's, 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 it's a variant on the same syrup that they use for chocolate milkshakes at, uh, at McDonald's. So they all have diabetes now, probably. <laughs> <laughs> probably. That's why Daniel Day-Lewis quit acting. Because he's uh, he has diabetes from that <laughs> no, film. <yeah. laughs> no, he he did uh, after this. Obviously, he did Phantom Thread, also with Paul Thomas Anderson, which I also really enjoyed. It, it wasn't There Will Be Blood, but you know nothing nothing is or will be. Um, but it was a good movie. You know, it's true that he is he has retired, right? He's not doing it. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I appreciate yeah, he just, that, he, man. I he really said do. that there there wasn't anything there wasn't anything left for him to do anymore. Like he, he didn't feel like he, there was anything anything that he could achieve. I mean, you never know. Someone might be able to pull him out of retirement. Scorsese might uh, might do another movie and, uh, you know, maybe he, he convinces him to, to play a role in it. Um, I, I think, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, with Gangs of New York, he had actually retired prior to that movie and it was Scorsese that got him out of, um, out of retirement the first time, so. That movie literally owes its success to him because I felt that movie was pretty, pretty weak in general. But I thought Agreed. that... Uh, that it's all the only reason to see that movie is to see Daniel Day Lewis act in it, really. You know. Yeah. No, I agree. It, it's weird because I, I really like Leonardo DiCaprio, but I, I feel like it's it's just unfortunate sometimes when certain people are are cast across from somebody like Daniel Day Lewis. You just get acted off the screen, and unfortunately, as 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 capable as Leonardo DiCaprio is, he just can't hold a candle to to Daniel Day Lewis in that movie. He 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 looks amateurish by comparison i think that leo currently might be able to do fare a little bit better than he did back then yeah yeah i agree you know, agree I, I feel like after i i started taking um leonardo dicaprio seriously with uh the departed and uh, i thought he was really good in that film and that's when i started really paying attention to him as an actor yeah, I I remember seeing him the first time in Basketball Diaries, which I I didn't enjoy. I know a lot of people did, but I thought it was a load of shit. I didn't. I then I saw my girlfriend at the time made me watch Romeo and Juliet, which I, I thought was one of the worst things I'd ever seen, and I I suffered through uh, Titanic. So I always thought he was a, a waste of space. And then um, I saw Catch Me If You Can, and I was like, gosh, this guy, you know, he's got something going for him. And then kind of the same as you, you know, there was that dual release of The Departed and Blood Diamond in uh, in one year. And, I, and after that, I feel like he's been on a real tear. He's been very, very good since then and very consistent. He's made one or two um, uh, decisions in terms of what he would star in that I don't agree with. I mean, The Great Gatsby is a fucking pile of garbage. 
but uh, for the most part, he's been very good. I thought Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was outstanding and, and probably probably the best role that he's ever played. I, I love that movie. Um, my uh, On the horror podcast I do, even though it's not a horror film, it's uh, we covered that. And uh, it's probably my favorite film of the year so far. You know, it's um, even Brad Pitt, who I've never been a huge fan oh, of. Oh, he was either. superb. And, and even Brad Pitt, actually, did you see Ad yeah. Astra? Ad Astra, did you see that film? No, I haven't. I recommend it. He does a great job in that movie too. And um, I, I, you know, it's I never thought I'd appreciate that guy, you know. But I do. I like him, you know. And I mean, I've liked him in movies, but he's played like you know two dimensional characters. Like when he was in, uh, I thought he was good in Snatch. Not I, I'm all right. I'm not going to say that he was good in that movie because he was terrible in it, to be honest. But I enjoyed him <laughs> as that character, and yeah. um, he was. Uh, I thought he was good as Tyler Durden in Fight Club because he was playing a two dimensional reflection of someone else, of Ed Norton's actual person. You know, he was like a yeah reflection of him, and yeah, of course, you know, he's the guy that he's guy he dresses, you know, whatever like the way he does. He's like, you know, the steroided version of someone's personality who generally has probably uh you know self-esteem issues and things like that but uh that's really been it for him as far as how how i've enjoyed his work until recently and now i feel like he's actually turned into like a real actor yeah i i've had ad astra lined up here at home and to watch for for quite a while now and i've just not uh, for some reason i've just not been able to get myself as far as doing it, so I'll take I'll take that under advisement and watch it. But I, I think uh, he, I think he was superb on Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I, I, I Once Upon a Time in Hollywood to me is just absolutely phenomenal. I love it. I think it's incredible. It's incredible movie, and it's it's one of Tarantino's best. And you know, I am a big big fan of Tarantino generally. So that's saying something. Yeah, there was there was uh, all of, all of his skills are in display, and um, yeah, you know, someone I. In the United States, as you know, we love cars, and there was a lot of really great cars in that film, and a lot of like car culture type stuff, which I really appreciated. And uh, that's like one of the only things I really like. I mean, well, I shouldn't say that. I, I do like California, but like the thing I like the most about California is being able to drive cars like out in the in the you know like the PCH and places like that. And uh, yeah, and that really is um kind of front and center in that film you know and i i thought that was cool yeah um one thing that i i we need to discuss about there'll be blood because i think it it's such a crucial part of the movie is the is the score i i don't know what your thoughts were on that but i much much as the movie is my favorite movie of all time i don't think i've ever heard a score that i've found as emotionally engaging and affecting as as Johnny Greenwood's on on this movie, I I, I think it, again it's it's just it's perfect. I can't conceive of anything that would have suited this movie better than the than than, than the, the soundtrack to to There'll Be Blood. Yeah, the score was great. It was definitely you know akin to like a Sergio Leone like type of uh, score where it really creates you know sets the tone for the movie i mean it doesn't sound like a sergio leone film but you know how you can't imagine watching like uh the magnificent yeah. seven or something like that without like this you know or uh, once upon a time in the west or something has like this very iconic score to it that's how i feel like the score for there will be blood is it's something that you could it just complements and creates an atmosphere for the film yeah no it, it, it's absolutely beautiful they've had a couple of screenings um 
I believe at the Royal Albert Hall um, over here in London, where they have the um, where they have an orchestra and they they do the score while the movie plays. And unfortunately, I've never gotten to watch it because it literally sells out like a year in advance when they do it. They they always do it like for one night only. Um, and generally speaking, both times it's been I, I've always found out about it too late. Um, but I did see Aliens done that way uh, a couple of years ago, and I have to say this was one of the most enjoyable movie experiences of my life rounded out by the fact that right at the end of the movie um sigourney weaver came walking first there was this old guy that came on stage and i said to my friend who's this fucking blue rinse uh, that, that suddenly walks on stage and then i was like oh my god that's uh, that's james cameron and then straight after uh this lady walks on stage and i i swear to god i was like one of the girls from uh you know when the beatles were at the at the peak of their of their oh, yeah. popularity i literally was like screaming oh my god it's ripley that's awesome so, yeah, dude, I I don't think I've ever heard a louder ovation than that woman received when she walked on that stage. Like it was fucking unbelievable. I get goosebumps just thinking about it. But I would kill to see there will be blood that way. Yeah, that sounds like it'd be great, man. Um, you know, that's I've never actually really. Well, that's uh, I mean, that's not entirely true. I saw a Goblin perform the score for uh, for uh, Suspiria. Uh, no, Dawn of the Dead. Dawn of the Dead at Roadburn a few years ago. That was pretty cool. Um, they played the film behind. Well, actually, it wasn't. A, it was more of just a live performance, and they played the film, so it was totally different. So yeah. And uh, there's that one other guy. Um, the other guy that was in Goblin, Garini. Uh, I'm forgetting his first name, but uh, Dante's Inferno, the silent film. Uh, at Salem Horror Fest last year, they uh, they showed the silent film, and he performed the score live, which was cool. Oh yeah. wow! Yeah, that was very cool. What the hell's the guy's Garini? Garina? Uh, I don't know. It's, I don't know why I'm forgetting his name right now, but yeah, he was. Uh, that was a very cool thing, and there was like literally like 50 people there because it was part of a festival, and there was like, you know, literally. You know, there's so many things going on at the same time, and it was in this small auditorium, and uh, it was like in the middle of the day, and it was great. It was fun, it was awesome. Yeah. Hopefully, we could do something like that again. You know, at some point. Fuck yes. Just one one thing, or uh, oh, side note, purely because uh, it was a member of Radiohead that did the score for that as well. But what did you think of the last um, of, of the Suspiria remake? I, you know. I, I haven't really decided if I like that movie or not. I, I go back and forth. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not one of these people who's like comparing it to the original. You know, because it's obviously two different movies. Yeah, the score I thought was awesome. Like I I'm I wouldn't say that I'm a fan of Radiohead, but I'm an admirer of the work that they do. You know what I mean? Yeah. And um, I mean I don't really listen to their records or anything. Or you know I'm not. You know I don't get excited when I hear about them, but. I, I admire the type of work they do, and there are definitely aspects to, um, you know, the individual members and what they can ac have accomplished in their careers too. You know. Yeah, I, I it was a weird one. I I was massively excited about seeing it, and then I started reading a bunch of reviews, and people were like, "Oh, it's not as good as the original. It's boring." Blah blah blah. So that kind of dropped my expectations hugely. Then there was a long delay in them releasing it here in the UK. And then when I finally watched it, I think my expectations had 
<laughs> it bottomed out to such a point that I, I fucking loved it. I really, really enjoyed it. I thought it was a very good movie. Uh, it's not not as good as, uh, you know, also out that year was Hereditary. I, it's not in the same league. I, I love Hereditary. Yeah. Um, and I think Hereditary for me is one of the best horror movies made probably since The Shining. Uh, but it's uh, yeah, I thought it was very good. I thought it was a really good movie, and same same as There'll Be Blood, the score is just stunning. I wouldn't call myself the biggest fan of Radiohead either, but uh, I I think they're incredible musicians. You yeah, know, there's no take, taking that away from them. Yeah, I admire them. Same th- same thing with Tool. You know, it's like I'm not I don't listen to Tool, but it's like I I can see like the accomplishment and what they've done. You know what I mean? Yeah, you know that's a band that always comes up where it's like. I always think it's funny that band like they uh, you know people are like, oh you don't like Tool like how come you don't like Tool I'm like well you know they're <laughs> fucking they're not my cup of tea man it's like you know, it's, yeah. what, do you, what do you want from me it's just uh, yeah I, 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 I own a couple of Tool records I remember when, when Isis toured with Tool that was pretty pretty cool you know but uh, but I um, yeah it's just not something I really I mean I did listen to them when they came out you know and I thought that was pretty cool and I saw them play a few times, but uh, they're they're like uh, like a a bro Grateful Dead in some ways, you know. It's <laughs> I think that's a good description. I yeah, I, I, Tool for me is weird. I I didn't like them when they came out because at the, when they came out, I was so gripped by death metal and black metal that, yeah. that to me all other forms of music were were fake and for for the weak. And then uh, you know my music taste very drastically expanded uh, in the years since. And so when the new Tool album came out, I decided to give it a chance, and I was quite surprised by it. Although, that being said, I have, since the last time I listened to it, which was probably about two, three weeks after it came out, I have yet to go back to it and listen to it end to end. Um, yeah. I, I can't so, get through some of their later records, really, you know. But you know. Yeah, it's it's just one of those things where there's so many other things I would rather be listening to um, that uh, you know it just doesn't feature very highly. It's kind of like it's like Metallica, you know, Beyond and Justice for All. I don't think there's okay and Black Album because of the age that I was at when it came out. But there's nothing that I've that they've brought out uh, in the last 15 years that I've listened to more than once. Um, it's not terrible, but it's not. It just doesn't do anything for me. I often I've, I've spoken recently on my podcast about you know the innovation curve, and I feel like, especially in in death and black metal, the the standard for what's great, like the the, the, the benchmark for what's truly great, is being set so high. Every so, not even just like every year, every fucking month, by the sounds of things, that a lot of stuff that that would have been great twenty years ago or twenty five years ago just doesn't cut it anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you listen to it and you go, uh, you know, there's. 10 other bands I'd rather listen to than this. Yeah, that's true, man. I feel like extreme music in general has, has always been very innovative, especially since like the turn of the century, I think in the last 20 years. That's really where you find creativity, you know? And, agree. Um, and, 100% and, agree. Yeah, just, I feel like people are more open to incorporating other things. It's not as regimented as it might have been in the 90s. Like death metal was like very purist and black metal was very like elitist. And there was like a, a uh, sort of emphasis on uh, a sort of orthodox approach to creating the music, you know what I mean? And uh, I think now uh, there's there's more of a, a bandwidth of acceptable influences that could be incorporated into both death metal and black metal and 
and it's you know it's it's uh, looked at as innovation instead of uh, not being cult or not being pure or whatever, you know. Yeah. Well, one thing I'm I'm glad is is for the most part died a death as well. Every so often, you know, a friend of mine and myself. Both of us are usually into uh, into hi-fi, so we'll we'll fire up either one of our systems and we'll sit listening to a lot of old stuff. And uh, that you know that kind of Beauty and the Beast Doom Death vibe that was was relatively popular in the in the mid '90s. You know where you kind of had the female uh, like operatic vocals yeah. with a death growl. I'm that that's one trend I'm glad has died to death because that music oh, yeah. uniformly was fucking dreadful. Yeah, I'm not. A, I wasn't a fan of that. I mean, honestly, a Doom in general has never really been my my bag. I mean, there's um obviously there's the bands I think that are great. Like uh, I, I put Evoken in that category as being a great Doom band. You know, Funeral. Um, I don't. I'm not a big Sun fan. Unfortunately, everyone loves that band, but I'm not. I like. I'll put them on like in the background if I'm like cleaning the house or something like that. But it's not like. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I, I find it to, to be very derivative of Earth, a band that I really liked back in the early '90s. You know, yeah, um, yeah. You know, like uh, my bloody, my bloody, uh, not my bloody Valentine, my dying bride, uh, is, in my opinion, one of the bands that really like crosses death metal and doom perfectly, and like uh, some of the early Cathedral stuff, I really dig. You know, but. In general, I'm very selective about the kind of doom doom I listen to. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Like for me, metal is is uh, we've spoken about this before. It needs to be confrontational uh, yeah. and it needs to be aggressive. Otherwise, I'd listen. There's a bunch of other music I'd rather listen to. Uh, like when I, I there is a certain kick I want when I listen to metal, and it's you know, it's uh, it's definitely not. Morgan from Marduk said this or described it perfectly once. Someone sitting by the side of a lake looking sad. <laughs> that's exactly how i feel it's like if i if i hear sniveling in music I'm, I'm i'm immediately not interested more more recently i've really been appreciating the kind of like like the punk influence in some metal you know what i mean like i've been listening a lot to earlier like you know like venom and you know bathory and uh you know celtic frost hellhammer like some of the re- i've been going really far back you know motorhead into like oldies you know and yeah and I find like it's even, you know, in some of the material I've been writing, it's it's starting to surface in a little bit of that too. Like I've been kind of going into this more raw direction with like songwriting and stuff. And I, I don't know if this is going to become like Tombs material, but it might be something I do with like uh, some other type of thing where it's like this kind of like Hellhammer like vibe to it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's definitely a step up in terms of aggression on the stuff that I heard on Monarchy of Shadows. Uh, versus the grand annihilation you know and i said to you before like i can i can hear um strains of of bands like melakesh on some of the new music alongside that that tombs sound that you know mixes in things like fields of the nephilim etc and i think it works very very well for you mate you know and i do I, i truly believe you know people need to go with you need to go with what's what's inside of you rather than thinking overthinking it too much and it definitely feels to me on the new tombs music that 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 it's it's more authentic in the sense that it, it came out of what you were thinking or what you were feeling at the time, rather than sitting down thinking I'm going to write a tombs album. Yeah, that's true, man. Um, I think like Grand Annihilation is definitely a low point in the band's career, and uh, 
Uh, actually, I think tomorrow the new the new record gets announced. I think uh, tomorrow's Tuesday. Oh wow! Yeah. So, uh, I, you know, it's funny, man. I normally am way on top of all this stuff, where uh, like I know all the dates, but just the lockdown and the lack of touring has like really put me off to things, man. It's um, I talked about this earlier, where like I had uh, a conversation with um a journalist friend who sees an amiss tired to uh, update the bio and everything. So we, we talked on the phone and I'm just like, what? who fucking cares, man? It's like, you know, like I get it. I understand you have to care, but like part of me is like, we're not going to go on tour. I don't know when we're going to be doing anything. So why do this? But that's just like this weird fatalistic thing that I'm on, I'm in right now. And then we shot photos over the weekend you know, press photos. And I'm just like, fucking why? Like, you know, who knows when we're going to even be performing live again. Yeah. And, uh, and to me, and I guess that's like the difference between the guy at the label or someone who's like working the business end of things. And me, the guy who goes out on the adventures on the road. And, and that's more, even more so than making records, like the live experience is where it's at for me. And that's like, when that doesn't exist, I feel like nothing really exists, you know what I mean? Because there's like, that's like a tangible, like real thing that you do, you know, and you, you co co communally do this thing. And um, the record is done. The record's part of the past, you know what I mean? And uh, yeah, so I don't know. It's like a weird vibe. And, and that's what I mean. Like, so I, I, I think, and don't hold me to this. <laughs> Because this is act, this episode is actually going up today. I, whenever I do these things, they go up right away. So tomorrow, oh, awesome. Tuesday, uh, the first of September, I believe a song is going to be released, and I also believe the whole they're going to start the press cycle for the record, which is you know, yeah, I mean, great, but there's no nothing to really promote besides you can buy this uh, record somewhere, and uh, yeah, there's no tours, there's no festivals there's no local shows there's like nothing to announce along with the release of the album which is kind of a drag you know you can do a, a quarantine jam and cover seven gates of hell by venom well actually you know what man it, it you, you mentioned that we're, we're make we are doing the one thing that actually is going to happen is at the end of september is we're recording a, a, a live video but we're not this the, the disclaimer is this when, when they asked us to do this, I was like, look, the last thing I want to do is make one of these like pandemic videos in a practice space with, um, you know, really rough production value so that in five years, you know, if there's anything left of our civilization and, and people are like <laughs> back to relatively a normal life, they see this thing and they're like, oh, yeah, man, I remember that. That was like 2020. I want to forget that fucking year. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I wanted to do something that was, it would actually have some longevity that would be a performance cut in with actual production and have like professional sound and things like that. So that's what we're shooting at the end of uh, September. It's, um, you know, we're going to like a, a space. It's going to be lit. There's going to be, uh, you know, imagery and B-roll cut in and there's going to be multiple camera angles and there's going to be, uh, a multi-track recording of the live performance that's going to be mixed by Sanford Parker, who was a, you know, 
I don't you should everyone knows who he is probably he's like uh he actually did our um all empires fall record but he's done you know knock mystium uh unearthly trance uh you know tons of bands you know yeah um he's in uh mirrors of psychic warfare that band with scott kelly and uh you know he's he's a good friend but also a very very talented engineer so he's going to be mixing it and um yeah, there's going to be, uh, I hope it turns out well, you know, it's, um, it's a, the closest thing we're going to be doing to performing live and, uh, yeah. but it's going to be something nice to look at though, I guess is what I'm trying to say. I was about to say, it sounds like it'll be something different as well to, to the standard quarantine jam, uh, which, which is a very good thing in my opinion. And again, I, I, I will say this, just, just circling back to the grand annihilation. I know you're not a fan. But Shadows at the End of the World is a fucking insanely good song. I, I, I absolutely love that song. Thank you. But that still didn't come out the way I wanted it to. It's like, <laughs> like that, it's, you know, and, and I, I don't want to point fingers, but our drummer, the drummer on that record was the wrong guy to be recording that record with us. You know what I mean? And like, mm -hmm. uh, he just, um, I think that, you know, if, if the current lineup had recorded that song, it would have came out with a lot more life in it you know but whatever. yeah i'm yeah. glad you like it though i i should just like take that and let it go is at that you know what i mean <laughs> no i know i know what you mean though man it's uh you have a competition in you as well There's yeah nothing wrong with that <laughs> yeah you know I, I just want to keep doing good stuff you know stuff that at least yeah. that i feel good good about i don't know whether or not you know like people you know I, i've been at this long enough man where it's like i can't hang my hat on like what other people like you know it has to be what i like and and yeah have to feel satisfied with it you know what i mean yeah yeah that well i'm i'm very much looking forward to uh to hearing it and when what i think you know let, let's give it a a couple of months you know maybe to narrow the album coming out but you must definitely come on into the necrosphere again as well yeah man totally anytime and uh you know it hasn't been announced yet but you know at this stage it's probably about five or six people listening to this thing so uh <laughs> so i'm gonna say the release date of the album is november 20th which um you know that's that's only a few months away and uh you'll yeah. be able to get it uh you know i i don't know uh if there's a, any record stores open near you or there will be but you can order it directly from season of mist or you can probably get it from uh you know holy mountain which is our merch uh guy he takes care of all the web store stuff or uh download it illegally um on one of the <laughs> many uh outlets you can do that you know and uh that's cool if you want to do that but if you're going to do that, buy a T-shirt or something so we don't completely get ripped off, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I'll buy I'll buy a T-shirt because I, I have to say one thing that uh, I do like about Season of Mist is uh, they put out everything on um, uh, high-res. So when they uh, – the the music service that I use is called Kobaz. And if, you, if you're if you a hi-fi nerd, it's specifically for, you know, people with decent stereo setups. Um, and all of their releases now come out in, in high res. So they sound fucking fantastic, Com you know, completely, uh, you know, we, we, none of the kind of usual MP3 compression and that fucking disgusting, you know, empty dead sound that you get on Spotify. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'll be listening to it on that and I'll definitely buy a t-shirt. Oh, thanks man. You know, I mean, I'll, you know, if we ever get out to England at some point, hopefully next year, I'll give you a couple of shirts if you want, you know, hoodie, oh, whatever, case. you know. Um, yeah, that's cool, man. I, you know, Season of Mist is, uh, they got it together when it comes to that kind of stuff, I think. And, uh, you know, it's cool that they're uh, Euro based in Europe, which is, um, that's always been like a, 
a frontier for us in some ways uh, is our presence in Europe. And I hope, you know, hopefully that changes. And um, yeah, you know, they're, it's, they're French, which is, uh, you know, it's fine. <laughs> yeah so you so you have french fries not freedom fries in other words i don't have any fry. i never eat that stuff but yeah if i do eat uh, a fried potato it's a french fry yeah yeah not a freedom fry <laughs> that I, I i don't know why i randomly thought about that but you mentioned george bush at the at the start of the conversation and uh yeah it reminded reminded me of that how the fuck did they ever think that was a great idea like and, are we gonna really get back at the french now We're oh not god man french. you know well yeah that, that had to do with uh not the like france not agreeing with uh us yeah and, no i know, know didn't, that's didn't want to go yeah that, didn't want to join the uh, coalition of the willing it's such a fucking passive aggressive bullshit weak like statement man you know what i mean and like i don't know i, I i'm embarrassed by a lot of that stuff and it, it sucks but hey you know this is where i live and uh unfortunately it takes a uh, a large swath of different types of people with varying ideas <laughs> to fucking exist in this country man yeah. and um you know what are you gonna do about it you know you could fucking no, vote no. you can riot maybe you know, totally agree. blow up a couple of state buildings or something. I don't know. I'm not sure. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you, man. And I'm looking forward to uh, jumping back on the show when we can talk about the new record and everything. That's cool. For sure. Yeah, I know, for sure. I, and uh, always, always great talking to you. And I always think about this, like when I, when I, when I've had a couple of conversations with somebody, uh, it, they always become more fun because the more you know the person, the more you can fuck around a bit and, you know, bullshit and maybe dig into stuff that you're not hundred percent sure you should, you should go into the first few times. So I uh, know it's been, a, it's been a blast, man. Thank you very much for having me. I love talking about there will be blood as you can imagine. So yeah, <laughs> I was, there was a period of time where I think almost every single one of my podcast episodes would at some point go, you know, involve a discussion about the movie. So when there was a chance to do a whole episode, just purely dedicated to it, I was like, fuck yes. Nah, it's a great so, film, man. I, I, I had a lot of fun talking about it. Awesome. Dude, thank you so much. Right. And uh, yeah, well, hopefully we'll catch up again very soon. All right, man. Enjoy your day. Take care. You too, brother. Bye. Take care.